till we couldn't shake no more. We got down on our knees when cancer knocked at our door. We got kicked in the ass. We gave lots of sass. Oh, when it rains, it falls into this half full glass. Oh, thanks, cancer. Thanks, cancer. Thanks, cancer. Victories in the dark. Hi, I'm Mimi Hall. And I'm Leanna House. And you're listening to Thanks Cancer. We are two cancer friends. And we're not doctors. We're not nurses. We're not shrinks. We're not psychics. We're not shamans. No, and cancer's pretty hard, too. I mean, cancer's a little hard. You might hear some swearing words in the episode. Ben, we hope you'll enjoy it. This is the podcast we wish that we had when we were going through our treatment. Hi, Mimi. (laughs) Hey, Leanna. We have a special guest star today. Someone who I feel like I knew. I mean, I feel like I've admired his art. I've admired the work he's done on the gram of Insta. And I've been talking to him on Twitter for two years. Yeah. We've been in his ear for since the beginning. So I who's think. this guy? Yeah. This is like the biggest guy in my life. <laughs> <laughs> is, is Doug Sparling. Welcome, Doug Sparling. Thank you. I first met Doug when he messaged me on Instagram because I found his Cancer is Art account. Right. And I thought it was super cool, so I started liking his stuff. And I can't remember if he followed me or I followed him. Do you remember, Doug? I do not remember. I did my first round of chemotherapy. I think I told you that was October 2017 to February 2018. And I remember after I got out of chemotherapy and I started going back to work, and it might have been a few months, I started checking out cancer podcasts. I like podcasts. I subscribed to like 180 podcasts. And I found Thanks Cancer. It was new. And I really liked it. Uh, Yeah. So, Doug, I'm kind of curious because I feel like... I know a little bit about your life, maybe post-cancer, but tell us a little bit about your life, like before you got a diagnosis. Like what kind of stuff were you into? Were you into art beforehand? Like what were you doing before you got diagnosed with cancer? Um, I was a musician for a long time. Um, Oh, wow. Okay. What did you play? A little bit of everything. In in bands, I played guitar mostly, but if you go back to all the years that I've done stuff. It's you know, I played saxophone, keyboards. I played in an Irish rock band and a traditional Irish band. I played any whistle, which is kind of like flute. And actually, I have a picture of me when I'm like a freshman in high school. I played drums in the jazz band. And oh, wow. So you're, yeah, you're one of those. You're multilingual with, with music. Yeah, I kind of found that for me, it's like, because I like music theory, like I think I just kind of taught myself. And then when I went to college, like I was a music major for like three years in music theory. And then. And you were, you were working full time when you got diagnosed. Tell me, tell me what you do for a career. Uh, I'm a software engineer slash architect, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, sit in front of a computer mm-hmm. and code. And a lot of times I have other people code for me, <laughs> whatever. Mm-hmm. No, but I've done that for a long time too. And I started the company I work for now. I started there in 1999, about 10 years years ago, I went to a startup for a couple of years that eventually got bought by Google. And then they put it in the Google graveyard. So there wasn't much future in that. <laughs> and so I, I'm back where I used to be. So I'm about at my 20 year anniversary. Wow. That's amazing. And that's I'll, awesome. yeah. I'll probably retire there. And tell me, like, how would you describe yourself before cancer? Before cancer? Like, were you a social butterfly? Were you like serious? Were you goofy? Like what? How would you describe yourself before cancer? Hermit? Introvert, didn't want to talk to people at all. Mm. I mean, it's funny because I see pictures, even today, it's like I have to train myself to smile because I don't know how to do it. I never did it before. 
But it's funny because I always did like that Myers-Briggs test and I always came out like mm-hmm. introvert and all that. And some new people at work and she's one of the directors and we were talking about the one. He says, oh, I bet you're an extrovert. And I'm thinking, well, probably now I am. Yeah. But yeah. It's interesting how that changes. I'm an ENTJ, but I can see the INTJ too. Do you know what I mean? You know, with the Briggs thing. And I sort of vacillate a little bit, I think. Yeah. But, but I think in yeah. my case with the cancer diagnosis, which I guess we'll get back to, but it, I mean, it changes everybody, I think. I mean, it has to. Yeah. It, but a lot of people say, oh, cancer made me a better person or cancer is this gift, which, of course, it's not. But I like to say that cancer made me a different person because it really mm-hmm. did. And not necessarily everything was better or for worse, though I think some was for the better. Um, but it, I mean, cancer does just slide you sideways, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so now, yeah, exactly. But so I'm very social now. It's just, it's just so weird. I'm, I'm 100, is it 180 degrees or 360? Whichever one it is. No, it's 180. It's 180 because <laughs> you can go full circle back into introversion. Right. Like, so. And I think that's so true. I mean, that's probably something that's such a theme through the podcast, too, that we find, too. I mean, like that, that change. That people change and you kind of, it's it's like sink or swim. Like if you can't, if you can't reach out or if you can't get the support <laughs> that you need, like, you're never going to make it through. Oh, no, I wasn't talking about that. No, I was talking about the total changeover. Do you know what oh. I mean? Like, the total, like, the, like the, just the different neural pathways that come alive. And the stuff. metamorphosis. Yes. Yeah. The, the, well, the chrysalis. The, the chemo-chrysalis yeah. <laughs> to right. the metamorphosis. <laughs> the butterfly. Okay, so wait, we don't want to get into the butterfly yet with Doug. So, no. so let's, um, so talk to us a little bit about, you know, your diagnosis and, like, how you found okay, out. Okay, yeah. Give us your three-minute cancer story. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Cancer okay. story. Like I said, 2017, maybe a few months before that, in Kansas City, you have this thing called the Plaza Art Fair, which is this huge art fair. And I walked with my son down there, and it's really not that far a walk. I mean, it's like a mile. And coming back, and we walked the whole time we were there, and it's like, I was dying. My lower back was just... Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of it, I just, oh, you know, it's just old old guy aches and pains. How, how old were you? I would have been 57. That was the year I was diagnosed. Mm-hmm. And I used to say that was old guy, but my oncologist doesn't think so, so... I'll go with her. But, oh, I was dying coming back. I literally just, I didn't know how I was going to do it. It was, it was all in the lower back that you were feeling the pain? Yeah, lower back. And, you know, I've had back pain before, but not like that. And actually throughout, throughout the summer, and I let this go far too long, I had a really bad cough. I work in a, it's like a six-story building. It's not that high. But I'd go up in the stairwells, and I would just cough my guts out, my lungs out, whatever you cough out. But And then I'd go back to my desk, and about two minutes later, just, and I just, I never went to the doctor. You know, I was just like, oh, it's the allergies is this or that and, you know I, I have a feeling that was a, a sign I ignored unfortunately or symptom so that those two things and even then I still kind of blew it off and then I remember one day my son and I went out to the Missouri River a little town called Parkville and we you know went to the little coffee shop Starcy town kind of just kind of hung out and it was really a beautiful day but I've just felt so weird and I still kind of didn't think anything about it and then with prostate cancer which is what I have your prostate gets enlarged and it makes it hard to go to the bathroom and I ran into that I kept ah oh, you know it'll get better it'll get better and funny and story it's also, you can also say it's just age too do you know what I mean like, yeah. oh it's age you know you can sort of write it off a little yeah, bit yeah and you know there's um, I forget what it's called BPH it's like you know it's a large prostate it has nothing to do with cancer but it got to the point where even saying this, I mean, it's embarrassing, but I would go in the bathroom. I'd lie on my side, stick my like my left foot up in the, against the wall. I'd get a cup and I'd pee in the cup because <laughs> I had to get just right where I could get things to work. You know, I was doing that and I just kept thinking, oh, it'll get better. It'll get better. I mean, it's like I've never had to do that before. And it's certainly not normal that I can see. But then one night it got where I couldn't go at all. And 
oh, I started panicking. It's like, I'm either going to drive myself to the emergency room or I'm calling 911. Fortunately, I was able to go to the bathroom. That was a Thursday night, October 5th. And so the next day I went and saw my GP. But, you know, I told him, it's pretty obvious. He, uh, We did the lab, did the blood test. I talked about it a little bit and he gave me a medication called Tamsulosin or Flomax. That's it. Kind of a weird name. And immediately I could go to the bathroom again. I mean, that really helped. But there was a portal and on Saturday I got my results. I thought everything came back except for my PSA, which PSA is an indicator, prostate specific in antigen. So it's uh, some protein from cancer cells and regular prostate, I guess, cells at the level. It's kind of nice because with prostate cancer, you can do kind of some early detection or screening with that. Is that a blood test or a urine test? Blood test, yeah. Whatever your results are, it doesn't mean you have cancer. It just means it's like a check engine light. You know, there's something going on. The normal range is like zero to four or undetectable to four. I think it's nanograms per milliliter or something, but it doesn't really matter. It's just four. And <laughs> anyway, Saturday, I had everything but my PSA. Like, well, that's weird. So Monday, I'm at work. I'm actually in the bathroom. I get call. I see it's my doctor and I pick it up and basically say, your PSA is 5,306. You know, four is considered kind of high. (laughs) High. And did you, when they told you that, did you know at that point, like what a huge deal that was? Oh yeah. I knew, I knew that was bad. A lot of guys don't even, I don't even know what a PSA is. I've heard that a million times and that's unfortunate because really the early detection screening is really important because I would not be where I am if I had gone in a year earlier, six months. I mean, I don't know. Tell, tell us what the doctor said next. Like, did they give you a sense of how serious it was? What were the next protocols? Uh, yeah. Well, first I said, can you repeat that? And you yeah. said 5,000? 300. Because I had no idea. You know, I heard people say, oh, it's mine's a seven or it's a 12. And it's like this, yeah. you know, alarm bells going off. <laughs> and I heard a few people, you know, getting up in the double digits or maybe a few with, you know, a couple hundred, but 5,000. And, and since then, I've, I've really only heard of one person that had a higher PSA than that, but they can get sort of high, but I was just totally freaked out. I just walked to my boss's office, said, told him what was going on. I said, I'm taking vacation. He said, oh yeah. My doctor said, you need to get in right now, you know, to get a CT scan and a biopsy. And that's what I did. Yeah. So I went in and I had my biopsy, which is a whole lot of fun. Um, Cause it's. I can't imagine. My biopsy was my worst part. Yeah. Um, yeah. They use a, I think it's a, it's a guided ultrasound that they stick up yeah. your <laughs> rear end and uh, hey. and that helps Lovely. actually because you know prostate I think they have like certain places they check by default but you know it's, it's like a needle in the haystack really but my urologist who did the biopsy when he saw what it was he kind of jokingly said and we were already on good terms so it wasn't like you know he just out of the blue sort of laughing at it but it's like oh I can pretty much guarantee you you got cancer and it's probably you know at that point he's stage four um, and that's what it was and so the way a biopsy works is um, they take 12 cores, usually that's a sample, and it's like they put this air oh. air pressure gun, and you can just hear it go, <laughs> and a needle shoots, I forget what that little area is called, but yeah, and yeah. so we did 14, we did a couple extra, uh, just to be certain, and all 10 of my cores were cancerous, and they were really cancerous, and so what you get from that is a thing called a Gleason score. It's hard to explain the Gleason score, but it has to do with cell differentiation in your prostate. And I think there's there's different grades, you know, the, the differentiation and the mutation and all that. So they, they take the two grades of so the cancer cells that make up the largest areas they, they find in the biopsy. And five being the worst, and I think one is the best. There's not really a zero, I don't think. And what they do is, is you have two scores. Three plus three is generally the 
the lowest a six is the lowest they recognize is even being worth looking at. So mine was a five plus four, which meant the most mutated cell was the most common one found in my biopsy. You're getting you're getting all the top scores in prostate cancer. I That's sure. And then the four meant that the second most mutated cell was is also bad. You know, the worst is a five plus five and a ten. So, and I looked at my my chart on that actually, and I'm surprised I didn't get a ten because so many of the individual samples were tens. So yeah, so I came in with about as bad as it could be, and then my metastasis. You know, I, I was a de novo stage four metastatic prostate cancer, so which means I started at stage four. Um, so from from you going into the doctor to getting your diagnosis, how long was that process for you? I, and I actually remember the days fairly well. It was Friday, October 6th is when I had the blood test. And Monday was October 9th when I got the call. Mm. And I believe it was that Friday, Friday the 13th, <laughs> I went mm-hmm. to uh, another hospital nearby and had a CT scan. And the next week on a Tuesday is when I had my biopsy. So it, it was a little over a week from yeah. blood test to CT scan to biopsy. So then was it through the CT scan that they found that it had metastasized to the other parts of the body? Yeah, then I did. With, okay. Yeah, that was, gave them a good idea. And then okay. we did bone scans and all the, I think, I don't think that's the only one we did was a bone scan after I got into the cancer center. And that was about as bad as it could be too. You know, this is my, pretty much my whole skeleton is metastasized and I, I don't know if you've seen a bone scan or not but black it's black where the the mets are and my my spine once I once I asked my oncologist before I was really more in the know or really wanted to know about my own prognosis or or condition I said well, how many metastases do I have and she just kind of looked at me she says it's, it's innumerable you can't count them it's just you know so oh, so my spine I hate that for you yeah so my spine was just solid black from top to bottom and was that was that causing the pain that you'd been feeling yeah, before? Yeah, probably. Uh-huh. Okay. And it was funny okay. when I did the bone scan at the cancer center, which is right after all that. Um, after we did them, the technician says, are you feeling any pain? And I remember saying, am I supposed to? Because I didn't really, except for the lower back pain, which by that time, it wasn't bothering me. So I came in with a high PSA, incredibly high PSA, a very high Gleason score, which is about as high as it can be, and just a high, high volume metastasis. So that pretty much meant I started out with chemo. Well, that did mean I started with chemo. It has to do with the volume, I think, of the the metastasis, whether you start with chemo or something else and do chemo later. And, you know, my my doctor, you know, she was really cool. She said, you know, uh, it's going to be, you know, it's it's incurable. So I'm told in this one whole sitting, you know, all this stuff and it's incurable, which means we don't take your prostate out, which I was like, woohoo, no surgery. Yay. Yeah, that's (laughs) true. Yeah. That is good news. I was pretty happy about it. Silver lining, I guess. Yeah. That's got to be a pretty miserable surgery. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I get all the side effects without the surgery because of the hormone. Right. But uh, lucky. Yeah. I see. Goes on and on, you know, the cancer, the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, no doubt. So, okay, so you're going to, so did she start to talk about a protocol right away? Um, yes. I mean, it was, she says, yeah, I just want you to know it's, it's, it's incurable, but pretty much it's just extend my survival and and deal with um, pain. Like deal with it as a, con- <laughs> no, yeah. that, as a chronic condition. Yes. And she used that phrase, which I thought, okay, I get that. I get that. And then later on, you know, a lot of people don't like the chronic condition or chronic illness for a metastatic cancer, but I really come to realize it's actually true, I think, as long as the medicine works. 
if right. the medicine works, I'm good with chronic illness. Call it what, you know, that's fine. But once, when I say the medicine quits working, I mean all the different therapies that I can do. Once all those quit working, then it's pretty much game over at that point. Right. So, yeah. So, so they put you on chemo right away and you did, you did one round of chemo immediately. Right. It was, I started in October and it was six cycles once every three weeks. And it was Taxotere, which I think is used a lot with breast cancer. I'm not sure in what scenarios. And Probably metastatic, which we're not too familiar with. We had Taxol, so it might be related to that. Yeah, I, I think they're related. I think it's probably a stronger version of what we had Could just be. guessing. And so I had some side effects and not other side effects. Um, it was pretty miserable, though. And it, it builds, it takes a while. The first time, like, oh, that's chemo? That's, that's nothing. <laughs> but after about the fifth cycle, like, oh, man, it was miserable. And I just pretty much stayed in bed 24-7. A lot of pain, a lot of extreme fatigue. And, of course, you get to that third week and you're feeling good again. And then you go back in and do it again. And were you working through this or did you take time off? Meryl, of I, took, I took time off. There's no way I could have worked yeah. through that. And I, I think part of it that the... Taxotere or doxytaxel was actually, it's it's less tolerable than the next chemo I did a year later, which is cabazitaxel or Jeftana. That one I actually worked through and it mm-hmm. wasn't too bad, truthfully. Um, and the normality of doing anything besides lying in bed is for four months. I got to tell you, it's just... It was worth it. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you really have to manage your expectations of like what you're going to be able to do. Yeah, and and yeah, I guess I'm kind of jumping the gun a little bit, but yeah. So I did the six cycles. Some people go up to ten, but we did six, which is fairly normal. So we did that one round, and I started hormone therapy. Hormone therapy the same time I started chemo, which is you know androgen deprivation therapy, or, or I think it's also used. I mean, yeah, breast cancer is very hormonal, too, so I think... Well, we're on the same hormonal treatment, right? Is it Lupron? Yeah, yeah. It's Lupron. I'm just, you and that's me. so interesting. I know. We're on the same drugs. That's like a special bond. It just though. blocks all hormones, basically? I guess so. Wild. I've heard <laughs> breast cancer and, and prostate cancer referred to either as, like, cousin cancers or brother-sister cancer <gasps> or sibling, but yeah, no, so I, that's why there's a lot of similar drugs. How many rounds of chemo have you gone through? Two rounds. I know some people mix the terms up, but it's two rounds, six cycles each. So I've done 12 cycles. Mm-hmm. All right. Eight months total. And right now, like, what is like what is your protocol now? You get the hormone treatment every three months? I have been. This last time we did it for six months just because of the coronavirus stuff. You know, who knows when next time it'd be in and all that and when they could give a shot. But yeah, every three months is typical and then what is it do i dare ask you like what's your what is your have you gotten any scans and is it working like is it is it holding things at bay or is it slowing it down now okay yeah i'll move this along real quick here so in october 2017 i started the doxytaxel slash taxotere and lupron and i was off the chemo by the end of february and by june or july the lupron quit working which meant my PSA oh, no. started going back up. And at that point, they call it castrate resistant because basically what that means, because... I'm sort of happy for they for you that you're castrate resistant, but I, I'm, I'm not. That, that sounds super masculine. I'm like, yeah, uh, dog, fight the power. Yeah, well, yeah, well, what it means is... It, not good. Even not with good. low testosterone... Is not working, you know, because oh. prostate cancer and it's the whole thing, like with hormone, 
hormones with certain cancers is get rid of testosterone that generally takes care of a lot of the, the problem because prostate cancer really kind of feeds on the, the testosterone. It's one of the drivers. But after about eight months, it quit working and my PSA started going back up. So that's what they call castrate resistant. Well, that puts you in a whole new level of badness. So after it started going up, we had to wait two or three. So my PSA had gone all the way down to 22, which is still really high, but compared to 5,000. But that's great. Yeah. yeah, that was huge result. And that's in, yeah, in less than a year. I went from 5,000 to 22, then it went up to 33 or something, then like to 55. And at that point, we decided, okay, it's definitely castrate resistant. So we're going to go on a clinical trial. My oncologist is a researcher, which is really cool. And yeah. I'm by that point, I'd become really involved in my own care, which I think is really important to do. So I got on a clinical trial that was chemotherapy. It was Cabazitaxel, the brand name's Jevtana. And the trial arm, you would also do this thing called Abiraterone, which is or it's, the brand name's Zytiga. And I got on that arm. So I got the best, because best of both worlds. So this trial was a combination because both Cabazitaxel and Zytiga are FDA approved already. So they're just trying to figure out the efficacy of them together, if it's better than mm-hmm. either one alone. Are they both taken um, through an IV? The chemo was, the, the Zytiga is an oral medication. And it is also a hormone therapy. And I forget all the technical terms of different types of hormone therapy, but with Lupron works by telling your pituitary gland to basically tell your testes, don't make any more stuff. <laughs> testosterone. Yeah, mm-hmm. quit making testosterone. So with the, the Zytiga, what it does, it actually, same thing with the testes, but also the adrenal gland, I think, creates about 10%. Oh. And it also... I can picture it. It has to do with the androgen receptors, but it blocks those. So even the cancer can't adapt on its own easily. So this sounds like pretty hardcore drugs. Yeah. Hardcore expensive, I can tell you that. (laughs) Yeah, when I started, it was around 12,000 a month. And they have generics now, which are around fifteen hundred to two thousand a month. But I've I, and I, this is a thing I would recommend anybody listening who needs that, which probably be a prostate cancer. I talk to my specialty pharmacy and ask about a um, what do you call it? Anyway, I got a card. Generic? Uh, no, the the, the one is a generic. That's like two thousand dollars a month. I got a copay card. I haven't paid a penny ever. Really? Yeah. And I, I see people saying, "Oh, we're going broke, or we're getting loans." Like, man, I don't know. I didn't even have to go to the far the manufacturer. How do you get a copay card? I just called the pharmacy and asked for it. And when I say the pharmacy, the specialty pharmacy through the cancer center. Like the blend, the, whatever they call them, the not the blenders, but like the people who make the drugs, right? Who create the drugs. So you somehow get this copay card and you can work with your cancer center to get the discount? Yeah, I think, I have to think maybe it's because if you go somewhere like an NCI designated cancer center, that right. they have enough people in the middle that they take care of that stuff. And even the manufacturer has a place on their website where you can ask for assistance. But I didn't have to do that. I just went through the specialty pharmacy. I just asked them one day, hey, can I get this paid for? That's such a good tip. Yeah, that's a great tip. Just I've never, I've never heard of that yeah. before. It's like the frequent flyer cancer card. Yes, it is. Yeah. And I would definitely at least anything like that, it cost a bunch of money. And insurance cover, I mean, that was after insurance. You know, initially the, the non-generic was... Ten or twelve thousand dollars a month with insurance. So wait, so that was after your insurance paid a lot of it. You were still left with that twelve thousand dollar bill. I would have if I'd ever done that, but I always had the copay card. But yes, that's cool. that is a price after insurance does their part. So it's almost like I have the copay for when I go to the drugstore. 
to get my drugs at a really steep discount. Uh-huh. But you're basically doing that with your chemo. Yeah. That's and, and great tip. I'm sure it's through the manufacturer. There's a, I would say anybody who has expensive medication, if you have it, like a specialty pharmacy, if you're at a cancer center, mm-hmm. ask them what they can do. And mm-hmm. if they can't, then you go to the manufacturer. And they generally right. have something online, a form you can fill out or something where you can make your case why you can't pay the exorbitant amount they want to charge. Hmm. And you don't you don't get anything if you don't ask, right? Yeah, apparently. <laughs> I mean, that is it's true. That is actually someone gave me that tip and I went straight to it and it was no problem. Paying it forward. I love it. And I love that we're going to be putting this out there, too. Yeah. That's oh, something yeah. I had no idea about. I mean, I thought so I was able to and I thought this is where you were going to go with this. When you do participate in a trial that often the manufacturer will provide the drugs gratis for you as being part of that clinical trial, which was the case for me. Yeah. Um, this, But not so. I, you know, my insurance covered the other portion. Well, that's the drug I'm talking about is through a trial. But the reason that I'm responsible for paying for it or finding how to get it for not paying for it is because it's yeah. standard of care. The, tr- the trial see. covered the chemotherapy drugs. And I think all I had to pay for was when they put the chemotherapy drugs, you know, prepped them before they went up to the injection room. Yes, exactly. That's me too. But yeah, I, yeah but I was responsible for the, the other drugs. And you have to check Got on that. It. But again, it was because they considered it standard of care and I would have been paying for it anyway, since this mm-hmm. trial was combining two drugs. And OK, so that worked really great. And I don't you know, who knows if it's the, the, the chemo had anything to do with it. Within a couple months, my PSA was near one. It was under 10. <laughs> and definitely by the third time I'd gone in, it was below one. And Were your doctor surprised? I don't you know. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, this drug has pretty good reputation for that kind of effect. And so my PSA has been around 0.1 for maybe not quite a year. So it's like it was better than I've, it's ever been in my whole life, probably, since I've ever had it checked. Do you feel better? Yeah, I do. Now than like a few years ago? I mean, obviously, you probably don't feel better than you did 10 years ago. Yeah, but, but the thing is, too, it doesn't affect my scans that much. Um, though I have, we have seen a slight decrease in the amount of metastasis I have. And the interesting thing about the trial is they don't really care so much about the PSA, because generally you hear, oh, my PSA is, they actually care about if my metastasis gets worse or if it goes to a visceral organ or something. Yeah. And it's pretty much just stayed stable for a year and a half. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, stability Stability is super underrated, I would say. Oh, absolutely. I, I haven't talked to a lot of metastatic patients, you know, and I think we do break into different camps. And I'd love it if maybe you could speak to that. And also sort of if you have a sense of what it's like, how being metastatic is different than someone who can say like, oh, OK, I had cancer. I kicked it. Because honestly, I think a lot about my next diagnosis, which will make me part of your camp, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, by nature. So I wonder if you could just speak a little bit to that, if you have thoughts on those. Yeah, I, I mean, physiologically, you know, there's a difference there, obviously, because generally metastatic cancer is incurable. I don't think it's always the case, but in most of the cases, it's incurable. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to die. A lot of people, and I don't, I don't know if it's actually known why that is, at least with breast cancer I've seen. I mean, some people go in and absolutely nothing works, nothing at all. And then other people, they live for 20, you've heard, you know, people 20 years with metastatic breast cancer. You know, it's like, sure. um, I think it's the same for prostate cancer and probably maybe other. Some bowel cancers can live a pretty long time too. Yeah. So, so that is one of those mysteries, I think. But, you know, the, the big difference, it could be like a chronic illness. Like we were talking, I was talking about before. It's at mm-hmm. this, this point, as long as my medicine or treatments work, I'm pretty much fine, you know. 
I can't run. I'm not allowed to really run or ride a bike because my bone density is is just my bones are so brittle. But yeah, small price to pay. That's, that's from the medication, not from the can. Well, partly from the cancer too. Interesting. So it's mainly the medication somehow that's leaching calcium from your bones. Well, no, it's not the calcium. The, okay. the medication is the hormone treatment, hormone therapy, yeah. uh, which without testosterone. You know, your bones, they need some of that. Um, and I'm sorry, my scientific knowledge, I try to keep up, but I forget more than ever. No, God, <laughs> you have a lot of organs and bones and things to take care of. <laughs> a lot of things, that's right. So really the treatment, that's the, probably the other big difference. Like I said, I've only known stage four, so it's really hard for me to say what is different emotionally or mentally, because I'm sure there's some things that are similar, but different with different stages of cancer, different types of cancer. But really treatment, for me is not curative. You know, it's it's really that's why I didn't have to have the surgery because it's systemic treatment. I'd already metastasized, so taking out the prostate really wasn't going to achieve a whole lot. Though there are clinical trials now; they're doing studies whether they should do localized treatment up front. You're a case in point in a way. Like, I mean, yeah. in a way, I mean, they can't see about metastases, but like you're able to get down that low with your chemo. It's interesting your hormonal treatments. Mm-hmm. So what what I thought was really interesting about the the metastatic cancer is that metastatic cancer crosses all of the like. Cancer cancer type lines that you have with, you know, breast cancer, bowel cancer, testicle cancer, testicular cancer, and with metastatic, like you are all in the same boat. Do you feel that way too as a metastatic patient? Absolutely. Now, I'm pretty sure stage, I don't know if it's stage four, like blood cancers are curable. Because there is no mm-hmm. there is no tumor, which I assume would mean there's no metastasis. I'm not really sure because really the metastasis is when bits of the tumor get in the lymph system or in the blood system and goes off somewhere else in the body and then attaches itself. And that's another thing that, you know, I have prostate cancer, but it's in my bones. I don't have bone cancer. I have, you know, it's still prostate cancer. It's metastasized to my mm-hmm. bones. So that's like a difference. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I told you I go to a metastatic cancer support group and I feel really comfortable with that. There are there is another guy with prostate cancer. It's it's about 50-50. There's a guy with kidney cancer, another with bladder cancer, and the women pretty much all had breast cancer or lung cancer. Mm-hmm. But we're all in that same boat. We were we're closer to the metal, you know, that you know, you see the end a little closer and mm-hmm. you're really yeah. going on a prayer with hoping the medicine works or if there's plenty of trials to go through and and magically they work sometimes and sometimes they don't. And sometimes they stop working, like you said, too, which that that seems really scary to me. Yeah. And like in my case, I'm in second line treatment and the third line treatment is assuming that things don't change too much would be an immunotherapy. And there's a, there's a couple other ones I know about. And there's been a lot of work in prostate cancer. Some cancers get almost no love, unfortunately. So, you know, so a difference that's happened is kind of hard to adjust to is I've gone from, I guess you could call it crisis phase. I'm stealing this from Kate Baller, but it's a crisis phase where your alarm bells are going off and you're in constant you're in treatment. And now I'm in more in the chronic illness management phase where I do scans, not treatments. I don't really have, I mean, I guess the, the Zytiga, the oral med is a treatment, but it's not, I'm not going in for IV 
chemotherapy. So you, have to, you have to switch gears. Yes, very much so. And another thing I found tough about that was, I don't know who said it, but they called the cancer center a cocoon of care. And I tell you that first year you get so used to just the constant attention and you know you're in there being taken care of that once you become, again, that more chronic management phase, what do you want to call it? It's it's scary because you're used to that, that care and you don't get it anymore like you did. I mean, you're still being taken care of, but you're just used to going into the cancer center and having people just taking care of you. Yeah. Tell, tell me about like, I mean, there's so much that I want to talk to you about. I mean, we, we can talk about this for like three hours, yeah. but I do want to really talk about because I found you through cancer as art. And I thought it was the coolest thing I had ever seen in my life because there were these images that were like very psychedelic mm-hmm. and colorful using cancer cells. So tell me about like when you got involved in that. You know, I worked downtown, so I started doing architectural photography. I guess you can call it that. And I got really interested in the history of the buildings and the architecture downtown. And after a while, I go, well, that's pretty cool, but I've done that to death. And then I kind of started playing around with just, they call it painterly photography or just abstract photography that you different. And you could do techniques that involve your camera and the outside or the whatever. And then some is you do a software. So my take on it was, wouldn't it be cool if I could somehow tie it to cancer? And so I think uh, if you've seen a lot of uh, cells or anything, you know, from under the, the microscope, that's just pretty cool looking to begin with. So mm-hmm. I had to decide how do I want to take this? So it wasn't to make it look prettier. Though I didn't make it look uglier. A few times I did. I decided it just happened to be the NCI on their website has a section where they have public they public domain art. Well, I say art, a lot of the slides and, and photography they have. So was it like as you were doing your cancer research for like, let me look up what this drug does to cancer cells and you're running across I, like cancer images? Like, was it a part of your research? It just kind of happened. I don't really remember now. It was just kind of an organic mm-hmm. thing because I was already making kind of some abstract images, not necessarily like those, but it wouldn't, you know, I'm saying it wouldn't be cool if I could make cancer and I generally start Start with, I call it a base image. I start with a, a pre-existing image and manipulate it as opposed to doing the whole art. I mean, I can. That's a whole different thing. But then you kind of lose the cancer part of it, which may or may not well, really matter. But I, I don't know. And when are we going to get the coffee table book? <laughs> I was thinking about that again today, actually. I have one book that I did of more abstract photography. That's it's on Amazon. Um, I didn't really promote it. It was just I wanted to see if I could make a book, and I did. So there we are. Okay, we'll link to it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll definitely link to yeah, it. It's called Doug Sparling Abstract Photography Volume One, or something like that, or Painterly Photography. That's what it's called. But no, I, I don't know. I just sort of felt drawn to the the, the cancer cells and they're not all necessarily cells but different microscopic things it's just so cool and i well and you say you say that cancer made you a different person so you're taking cancer and making it look completely different yeah it, it, that's yeah mm-hmm. hmm. i i love the i love the idea behind that and Oh my God, I still need to, I'm going to take some of your images and put them on pillows and make throw pillows out of like cancer. Cells. Yep. <laughs> it sounds amazing. Uh, I think it's a brilliant idea. Yeah. I like it too. And if you're mad at cancer, you can just punch the pillow. Yes. yes. Scream into the pillow. Do it. Do it. And what I've been wanting to do, and I've, I just, I have so many ideas, as you know, that some of them 
get backburdened or some I start and they slow down. But you can get your scan on a disc if you ask for it. So a couple times ago, I got my bone scan. So I have them on a disc and I want to use my bone scan as, as the source of my cancerous art. I think that's a really interesting idea. And I actually think a lot of people would be interested in having their own bone scans yeah. manipulated or turned into art. Because I think with a bone scan, it's more, it's me. You know, that's, it's me. <laughs> Instead of me finding things I like and, you, you know, this, I'm starting with a picture of my bones. Well, it's the bone scans, but, and it doesn't have to be black and white. I did a few test, test ones. Actually, it was just some random bone scan I'd found to see what I could do with it. So that's still on my, ta- on the table for the table book. That's interesting. That's really cool stuff. And did you feel like that the cancer opened up this creativity for you? Like it opened up a portal for you with this? Or was it sort of already there with your abstract art? I'm just curious. I don't think I would have gone there huh, without yeah. the cancer diagnosis. I mean, I've tried other creative things with photography. And I've tried to learn art proper. Like I can draw sort of, but I would never be able to do the things I'm doing. And I think software art is legitimate. You know, there's a lot of people that do that oh, either, yeah. either completely from software from the ground up to kind of like what I'm doing. And and I think it relates to music a lot, too. Yeah. Actually. And, and again, it's not just, oh, I'm going to put a filter on this. I do. It's a lot more than that. You know, I can spend hours working on just one. And a lot of times I have different kind of phases or modes, but I will do a lot of it on my iPhone. And I just I get a ton of software and I like to use the software to make things. I like to have the, the, the ability to control everything I want as opposed to just yeah. here's the filter, you know, and like, so I do that a well, lot. I'm, I'm glad that I found your cancer as art. And that is like one of the maybe dozen things that you do in the cancer community. Tell me like, like what, what other, you're involved in a ton of things. Can you just like list for me, like what kinds of things you're doing right now in the cancer community? Just the ones that you know off the top of your head. Yeah. And there's probably so many I've forgotten, but um, <laughs> when I started after my diagnosis, I pretty much stuck to my treatment and in that. And then uh, there's a place called Turning Point, which is related is under the auspices of KU Cancer Center. They have a lot of classes. And unlike Gilda's Club, they're not just for cancer. They're for chronic illness. There's a lot of stuff. So That's I started really a cool. support group. And that was thing number one, I guess. And that, you know, that I was really scared to even go there at first. And once I did, it was the best thing I ever did. Like, like the first, was it the first time you went or did you like have to learn to love it? Yeah, I had gone to a non-metastatic group first thinking, oh, this will be safer. But what I ended up finding out, and it was a great group, it still is, but I left feeling uh, worse really than I started because mm-hmm. they're just, I had everyone was in remission or everybody was cured and we just had just different outlooks on things. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go to the uh, metastatic group. And, and it was a brave move for me because I told you at first, I didn't even want to know what my own, not necessarily prognosis, but anything about just tell me the minimum I need to know. The first time I went in and met my oncologist for my first scans, we had already talked about it. And she says, well, do you want me to show you your scans or you want me to just to read the report and said, yeah, read it to me. That's all I want. You know, so it took me a while to really get used, come to an acceptance to where I was. Yeah. So going to the metastatic support group, it's like, you know, 
jumping in feet first in the, the deep end when you're not, you can't swim. I just, it was, I was not ready for it. But then someone took me in and kind of became my mentor, really. Um, that was kind of cool. And, and that was another patient? Yeah, another guy. Yeah, he, the first day, he kind of really just made me feel a lot better about where I was because at least I think that first six months, first year after a diagnosis. And again, I only know metastatic diagnosis, but I think any cancer diagnosis is just, it's it's mind-blowing, you know, and mm. you need someone who knows what you're going through. And yeah, it's nice to have the support of your family, but if they don't have any experience with cancer, especially lived experience, then mm. it's not quite, for me, it wasn't, I won't say it wasn't good enough, but it, just to feel... To figure it all out, I had to have someone who had been through it or was going through it. Yeah, I totally, I relate to that. I needed not necessarily to be close to people that had gone through cancer, but I needed to be close to people who had faced death. Mm-hmm. That was, that remains important to me, actually. Like it, I'm finding that my closest new friendships are with, and my deepening friendships are with people who've gone through something like this. Oh, it doesn't have to be cancer. It's just any time, maybe, or just a serious trauma, even, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Even like on Twitter, not all my friends. Are, I mean, most of my friends have cancer or they're caregivers or they're professionals, something. But I I still connect with people who have other probably primar- primarily emotional trauma, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the right mm-hmm. word. And some people with other disabilities, because even in that big picture, we're still kind of all in it together. There's always PTSD. And I think after these kind, this level, right? Right. And so anyway, so so that was kind of the... So fr- that's really right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you made me over- Whatever. Um, do you tell, tell us about like, what were some of the highlights though? Just uh, the positive things that, do you have any positive things that came out of this time in addition to the art? And thanks cancer. Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is the podcast. It was thanks cancer. We can stop now. We may have to do a part two. I don't know, but, um, we may, uh, we may finding because I didn't know, you know, so people get diagnosed with cancer again, all stages and types. And I didn't know that there was this group like us that do, just don't go to the doctor and take your medicine. You go home, you never talk about it again. You know, that's not me, but it's not everybody. And I'm guessing we may be in a minority. I don't know, but there's sure a lot of people I've met on Twitter. I know that. So really Twitter was the next thing I did to get into the community and boy talk about getting into the community it's there and that is probably the best thing I've ever done was was I'd used Twitter for years and I tend to compartmentalize things so I'm going to create a cancer account and I have been talking to my uncle psychologist about that too and I said well I'll do it when I'm ready and I think the first couple of weeks I just retweeted a few things and you know you probably know the way to get people to follow you and to meet people is by posting original content sounds kind of I don't know. But yeah, Mm -hmm. so I just, I'm, I feel like I've been put through this horrible experience and the least I can do is share some of it or all of it. And that just kind of, you know, one thing led to another again. I think cancer and Twitter go together because I can only handle cancer in 140 characters at a time. <laughs> Small doses yes. like chemotherapy. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I feel like this, like, you know, like this weekend, so I think I made a post. Yeah, put something there. Make me happy. Something that makes you happy. You see, you know, I want to be happy. You know. 
and it's a thing still going on. I mean, I've gotten so many replies, and I feel bad that all I can do now is just like them because it's hard to res- to respond to all of them. I like to. Oh well, you 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 can't you can't respond to everything, but as long as you're posting amazing original content, I'm sure that you'll keep having those great conversations. Yeah. I I also wish I would have discovered Twitter earlier. Yeah, I well, it, you did eventually, so that's all that matters. And I think now that I've been on Twitter, I'm going to guess a year and a half, maybe. I'm trying to think because I I started about the time you guys started your podcast, pretty close. And now I've gotten to know so many people. It's a little different than it was, you know, when I first got into it. I was, and I don't care about numbers, you know, how many followers I have and all that stuff. I don't really, I don't care. I do like that I can reach people. And if things mm-hmm. I'm saying mean something to people, that's really important to me. So my first protocol for you is get on Twitter and don't care about followers, care about connections. Correct. You know, what's, what do they say? If they will come. But I want to hear from Doug. So Doug, tell me what your protocols would be for, you know, yourself, like a few years ago when you first got diagnosed. Well, what advice would you give? Probably like the number one and I think you guys last couple of podcasts you've you've hit upon it. It is you're not alone, you know. And mm-hmm. I that's a thing I didn't know for the first year. And it was just a lot of it was so miserable because of that. And that's when I discovered somewhere along the way I discovered Emmerman Angels. And I go, yes, yes, the reason that thing exists is I can't remember his name, Tom Emmerman or whatever it is. He said he was in a, in a chemo area and somebody the next he had all his family with him and someone the next room over had nobody. And he thought nobody should be alone. Again, that goes back to, you know, don't go through this alone. Don't do it alone. And to me, that's really important. But it's sort of like you guys talk about your podcast. It's like the podcast we wish we would have had when we were going through our treatment. And to me, what I do on Twitter is the stuff I wish I would have known about when I first got diagnosed. Mm-hmm. So that is one. It's so valuable to the community when people, instead of just, okay, I totally understand the impulse to just fuck off and I don't want to think about cancer ever again. But if you reach out to the community and provide that scaffolding, like it makes for a better community. And it makes it makes such a difference because those people have helped me. Mm-hmm. And and back to the different types of people, there's not, absolutely nothing wrong with you go to the doctor, you get your diagnosis, you get your medicine, and then you go home, and that's the end of it, pretty much. Other than going back to the doctor, you know. I felt I it was a a personal thing for me. I mean, I really it's like wow, I've been through all this. I feel this need. To give back, when I was with my uncle psychologist, one of the things somehow we started talking about was: Are you are you familiar with the book uh, "Man's Search for Meaning" by Viktor Frankl? Yes. Yeah, and so that had kind of come up in our discussions. And I read the book in the first chapter. It might have been the preface or something. He quoted Nietzsche, which was which is on my Twitter banner or whatever you call it. It's like to live is to suffer, to survive is to find some meaning in the suffering. And and that is mm. like, yes, that's that's it. So I do what I do to find some meaning in the suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, I suffer. That's a great protocol. That, that's that's an protocol. amazing protocol. That's maybe the best protocol we've ever had. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think <laughs> Well, it is Nietzsche, but it, it, it spoke to me, you know. Beautiful. Um, and so that's that's how I am. I mean, it just, I don't think I'd be here without that conception for me. And, you know, it's not everybody. Maybe it's just me that gets that hardcore into it. But, I mean, 
it's really that important to me, you know, that I just feel like it's giving back and finding that meaning in your suffering. It just it's mm-hmm. it gives you a, a reason to live, you know, a reason mm-hmm. to be here. Because I can say, well, you know. And, and to me, like, it's almost like, I'm sorry to interrupt your protocol, but it gives you a way to die to, for me. Like, it's like, okay, if I've done everything I can do. I can rest, you know, but yeah. I need to know I've given it my all. It's like kind of any job I take on. Yeah. And you know, it's like, I'm going to give it my all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Find the most meaning, <laughs> squeeze it out, touch the most people. And then, you know, then living my best life while, you know, while we've got it. Right. Right. And, and yeah, it's like, okay, when I was told you have, you know, maybe one or two years to live because it has a lot to do with, you know, my diagnosis was pretty heavy. You know, there's a lot of things going on and that's really depressing. And it can be really depressing and it's upsetting, which is normal. But then I come back to the, the suffering, you know, finding meaning in the suffering. That's, that makes me want to stay around mm-hmm. instead of just giving up. And more suffering is more meaning. <laughs> <laughs> I think you have a deeper reservoir. Yeah. <laughs> I actually do believe that. I think you go deeper. I think the yeah. pool gets deeper. Yeah, I, mean, I think Mimi's right. You know. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, life is I don't right. know how you're telling us apart right now, Dad. That's amazing, too. Is that is it like <laughs> superhero skill? That's a side note. The first several episodes, I couldn't tell you guys apart. And, of course, now... <laughs> And now, of course, to me, your voices are very distinct. But I, you know, do we sound that much alike? I would think I'm just very impressed with Doug's ear. He's a musician. I I know. I know this now. I didn't know (laughs) before. I don't know if they're that much alike, but I didn't know who you guys were. And and it was just, you know, just two people talking. And I could tell the voices were different, but I didn't know who was who. And and then I was, oh, here, this voice. Now, is that the one or is that the other one? But I look back at it. Well, it's me. It's me and Mimi. Yeah. (laughs) Basically the same. (laughs) All right. And let me just ask any, do you have another protocol for us, Doug, before we, before we close? Do you think I should really, because I can't top that one if that's like the best one you've ever heard. So (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of the best. I want to say, I want to say we do an episode number two with Doug, because I feel like we can go further. I know. Well, there's like a ton of things. I think we do have to do a Doug part two. I think we do a Doug do. Dumb dose. Dumb dose. Testing one, too. Okay. Yes. Um, well, I, I'm really grateful, Doug, um, for coming in contact with Cancer's Art. I know that you definitely, like, I just really responded to the way you poured your creativity into what you were doing. And I think that's where I found a lot of alignment with the stuff that we're trying to do. So thank you so much for doing that work. I found it really cool and inspirational and really trippy. I like it. <laughs> and thank you for, like, reaching out early on because you were you were like my first fan yeah (laughs) first fan we love you all right listen thanks so much to you doug thanks liana thanks baby thanks cancer thanks Thanks, Thanks, liana and thanks cancer That was our episode. Thanks for listening to Thanks Cancer. If you guys enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you would give us a review on iTunes or Google Play. And you can find us on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook at Thanks Cancer. And please, we'd love to hear from you, your stories. Your protocols. Exactly. Advice that you have to share with the community. So send us your audio files at info at thanksCancer.com. Traffic stopped, you lay on the horn and you ask yourself, where is my cancer unicorn? But we're at the gate with your cancer card, we're your passport date, cause cancer's damn hard, oh.
cancer Thanks cancer Victories in the dark